Amen. Well, good morning, Austin Stone. It is great to be with you this morning. My name is Joey Shaw, and with my wife and, and kids, I actually live in Barcelona, Spain. Anyone been to Barcelona? Yeah, it's the land, I, I say it's the land of three things, wine, pig, and cheese. So I always tell people, if you like one of the three, you're going to love Barcelona. <laughs> actually, so, so yeah, I live in Barcelona, Spain, and there in Barcelona, I am the co-director of the field office of the Austin Stone, which gives oversight and care to all of the goers. You've heard about goers probably from the Austin Stone. We give oversight and care to the goers from the Austin Stone in a partnership called the 100 UPG Cooperative. And we've been in the mission field for 10 years. And so it is really an honor to come back to the Austin Stone. A long time ago, I used to be the missions pastor here. And it's really an honor to come back here and share with you something that has been on my heart for a while now. And so if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open it up. Or if you've got your phone, go ahead and, and get that ready in your application to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. We're going to read through verse 16, all right? But, but before we do that, as you guys get ready, let me kind of give you the main idea of of, of my, my talk this, this morning. If that's okay with you, I just find that helpful, just kind of know what's the main point, all right? So the main idea, you'll see it on the screen here, is this. As Christ's captive servants, God is calling us to offer our lives as a sacrifice of worship in the pursuit of God's mission among all peoples. As Christ's captive servants, or in other words, as slaves, God is calling us to offer our lives, and he's calling you to offer your life as a sacrifice of worship in the pursuit of God's mission among all peoples on earth. All right, so let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 through 16. You'll see it up there on the screen as well. But thanks be to God, who in Christ, Jesus Christ, always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life, and who is sufficient for these things? All right, so let's just kind of unpack this passage step by step, and I, I kind of want to share with you what God's been teaching me through it, and, 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 and I hope he might teach you as well. So first thing, notice the use of the phrase triumphal procession. That's a very strange kind of way to say things. The Apostle Paul, who, who wrote under divine inspiration this letter called 2 Corinthians, is uh, drawing our minds to a very powerful word picture, a Roman triumph, all right? A Roman triumph. A Roman triumph was an ancient custom, ceremony, wherein a general from Rome who had gone out to the field of battle comes home to Rome in a massive citywide celebration. So I want to kind of paint the picture for you. So you can imagine Rome, ancient Rome, 
the streets of Rome lined with tens of thousands of people clothed in white on scaffolding on each side of the road with pomp and circumstance and music and aroma. And here comes a general, a triumphing Roman general coming home to Rome. Now there were conditions to have a Roman triumph, all right? So let me just kind of list those conditions for you. First, the general coming home had to be of highest rank in Roman society, okay? Second, he had to go to a far off land, leaving his home to a far off land. Third, he had to conquer territory through battle. And then fourth, he had to win such a decisive victory in that far off land that though there were still battles raging, the war was all but over. His victory had to be so decisive that everyone knew it was over and he could actually come home. So obviously we're, we're kind of, the Apostle Paul is painting a picture of the Lord Jesus, right? You see that? The Lord Jesus, his home is heaven at the right hand of the Father. And he left his home, went to a far off country. He conquered and triumphed in his war to such an extent, so decisive was the victory of Jesus Christ that he ascended and went back home. (laughs) You see it? And it's beautiful to see that. But the word picture, picture takes a surprising turn here, okay? And the surprising turn is kind of counterintuitive to us because I don't know about you, but me oftentimes, I kind of think of myself as kind of the center of the story of God's redemptive plan, right? I mean, us, us, the church, but I'm part of the church, so really me, like, you know, we're kind of the main idea, right? This is kind of how I often think. I'm, I'm the main idea of God's redemptive story. Jesus sent came from me, right? And, and God, kind of the center of history of all, of all creation, it kind of boils down to God's redemptive plan to save me. So I'm kind of the protagonist of God's story, right? No, no. The apostle Paul is actually painting a different picture here. What he's saying is that, you know, we're not the center of the story of God's redemptive plan. We're not the main idea. Instead, the Lord Jesus is the triumphing general. Now, when that general would come home, in his procession were three groups of people, three groups in this massive parade. At the center, you had the general, right? Cloaked by his entourage and horses and chariots and so on. Behind the general, you would have his conquering forces, the victors. But it was the group in front of the general who the apostle Paul is 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 connecting us with. And that group in front of the general were the slaves of the general. These were the slaves who were captive by the general, taken captive, and were marched to the center of Rome, where in the center of Rome, they would either be executed or taken as permanent slaves. And the apostle Paul is actually connecting us with that group, the slaves. And that's, that's strange. You would think, well, for, okay, I get it. Maybe I'm not the center of the story, but am, am, aren't I like a victor in Christ? Well, yeah, but we're looking at this from a different angle here. We're actually seeing that the Apostle Paul 
is highlighting that we are the captive slaves of Jesus Christ. Let me kind of help you to see this in the text. So if I want to make sure that text is on the screen there. Just look at the structure of the statement there. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession, all right, who in Christ always leads us. Who's the subject? You just like grammatically, like I'm really sorry that we have to talk about grammar this morning. That is the worst, right? No offense, English teachers, I love it. But most of us struggle. Jesus is the subject, right, of the statement, and the object is us, all right? He's leading us, all right? And he went and had triumphal procession. He won a victory over what? Over evil, evil, evil itself. You see, the Apostle Paul only uses this phrase triumph in the New Testament one other time, and that's in Colossians chapter two, verse 15, where he says that through the cross of Jesus, God, quote, disarmed the rulers and authorities, in other, in other words, uh, spiritual, have, uh, spiritual evil beings, and he put them to shame by triumphing over them in Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus triumphed over evil. But here's the thing. When we think about triumphing over evil, we're really thinking about us, aren't we? We're really thinking about us. Romans 5 calls us the enemies of God because we have chosen the path that's different from the path of God. We have chosen sin. We, before Christ, are actually the enemies of God. We are in some, this kind of cosmic warfare. We have committed what one person called cosmic treason against the God of the universe. And so when Jesus came to conquer evil, he came to conquer us and make us his captive slaves. And that's why we see this phrase in the New Testament, the slave of God, Romans 1.1, the slave of God, the slave of Christ, excuse me. Now, here's the thing, kind of what this means is that we are not our own. If you're taking notes, that's kind of what you, that's, that's the all cap statement. I am not my own. I am not the captain of my ship. I'm not in control. I'm not the boss of my life. I had to really deal with this, this kind of brute force reality uh, just over four years ago when I was diagnosed with a type of uh, lymphoma, type of cancer, the blood cancer called non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I was in Barcelona, and the doctor said I was, um, I went to the doctor after a series of tests, and she told me, she said, listen, you've got tumors all throughout your um, abdomen area. And after a series of tests, we found out it was a type of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And this was earth-shattering for me, honestly. I had been through a lot of trials, and, and I, I've been able to weather a lot of trials in the mission field, but cancer is the one I was not ready for, not at my age, at least. And according to science, we found out my cancer is incurable. Some people live weeks, some people live decades. And I, just to be honest, I remember when I got into a taxi on the way home from the doctor's office, and I'm, I'm reckoning with this news that she gave me, right? And I remember in the taxi, I was actually with a friend of mine, and he was like, how are you doing? And, and you know what I said? I, I told him, I said, look, 
honestly, I don't want this. I don't want to, and I know it may sound strange, and I'm, I'm not saying this is everyone's story, but this is just my story. I, I, I thought and told him, I don't want to be the cancer guy. And I know that may sound strange, but that, that I, don't, I don't want to be the health guy. We're like at every prayer meeting, every conversation's about like, okay, now let's pray for Joey's health. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want this. And I'm gonna be honest, to this very day, I don't want it. I had to come brute force, head up against a brick wall of my insufficient power and control over my own body. I can't even control the cells in my body. And it was like a wall of autonomy. I, you know, I am not autonomous. I'm not in control. And, and, and then through some reading, I came across a 16th century catechism of the church called the Heidelberg Catechism. And the first line, the opening line of the catechism has given me great encouragement. I want to read it to you. The catechism structured in questions and answered. So here's the opening of the Heidelberg Catechism. It says this, question, what is your only comfort in life and death? Take a moment. Don't look at the screen. Take a moment and answer that honestly. What is your comfort in life and death? Answer that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And that has given me great encouragement to remember. You see, because the loss of autonomy, the loss of being my own, of being the captain of my ship, that kind of reality used to be a threat to me. But now, I see it as my very hope. Our very hope is that we're not in control. (laughs) that Jesus Christ is the conquering general. So what about you? What are you holding on to? What are you trying to control in your life to shape the trajectory of your life? No matter where you are in life, what are you holding on to in the hope of control over your life? Let's move on to the next phrase in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. It says, through us, God spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ Everywhere. So here, here's the big idea. The fragrance, as the, as, the, as the procession went to the city, the fragrance went everywhere. You could not corn off parts of the city from this wonderfully sweet-smelling aroma. But the problem for us is that we often try to do that, right? We often try to kind of section off parts of our lives to God and then section off parts of our lives for ourselves. I mean, that's, that's been my experience. I, and I, I know it's your experience as well. This is our struggle. I faced this kind of reality years ago, actually my first job after college, right? In college, I went to uh, University of Arkansas then came here at UT uh, for grad school. And after college, I was, when I graduated, I was actually fluent in Arabic, okay? And that's another story for another day. But um, so I was ready to conquer the world after college. Fluent in Arabic, thought I knew everything about the Middle East and so on and so on. Um, and so I was ready. Well, I needed a job because I just got married. And so I, I gave my application to a friend of mine. He's like, hey, I'll give it to my boss. Said, okay. So the, the company called me in, and it was a company that tests consumer products for Walmart. So they called me in and said, hey, we're going to put you through a series of interviews. 
kind of see if you might fit in any of the departments of our company. And I was like, okay. I, I honestly had no idea what, what this company did or, or anything like that. So I said, okay. So they put me through a series of tests. And one of those tests was a color test. And this test, basically, they, they, they put me in a table in a light box and they put like 20 shades of, it was green or red, I don't remember, in front of me, like super minute differences in the shades of this green, right? These little capsule things in, in green. And they said, all right, we're gonna set the timer. We want you to arrange it from like it was green to red. I'm like, well, they're all green. He's like, yeah, I know. So just arrange it from green to red. I'm like, okay. So I'm sitting there thinking, what am I doing? So I arrange them and, and he clicks the timer. He looks at me, he says, that's amazing. I said, what? He said, you aced this test. I said, really? He said, yeah, normally we don't get guys who excel at this test. Because, you know, with, with women, they're looking at makeup a lot and minute shades, but normally guys don't ace it. He said, but you have an excellent eye for color. I was like, thanks, you know, <laughs> appreciate it. I had no idea. So he walked me back to a back room in the, in the uh, factory or in the, the, the warehouse, and he walked me into this closed room, no windows, lights off, and he said, all right, here's gonna be your desk. And here at that desk was a light box. It was complete dark in the room, but a light box and where I had to stick my head in all day when I clocked in to, to when I clocked out and look at a fabric and give um, uh, comparison to the colors in his fabric. And I was the regulator for the color, all right? Now he said, all right, you have two product lines, children's pajamas and women's underwear. And I was like, you understand I'm fluent in Arabic, right? Like, I can do stuff. I can change the world. You know, he's like, yeah, but you're going to look at women's underwear all day and tell if it's too pink or too blue, all right? And I was like, okay. So anyway, I started working there, and literally I could tell you like 15 shades of pink. And I was so depressed. I literally, this, it's a good job, and there's a place for it, but for me, I thought I had a trajectory, and here I was looking at children's pajamas and women's underwear, and I got depressed. You know what I did? I shut down. I literally shut down. I would come home to, to my wife, not speak much at night. I would go to work, not speak much. Actually, what I did is I would bring my Economist magazine, you know, this high-flying, you know, super smart magazine. I would actually bring it with me to the office, and during my 15-minute break in the morning, 15-minute in the afternoon, I would... All my coworkers would sit there in the break room. I'd go as far as I could away from them and read my precious economist with my daily New York Times so I could feel like I was doing something. And about six months into that, I was really in bad shape. And I had no friends at, at the office. They knew that I didn't want anything to do with them. And one night I heard God speak to me and he said, stop whining. And I had a night and day shift. So I told my wife, Crystal, I said, hey, what can I do to bless my coworkers? She said, I don't know. I said, what about brownies? I'll make brownies for them. That's all I knew to do. So I, I made brownies. She was like, I'll do it. I was like, no, I want to do it. So I made brownies, brought them to the office, and I literally left my economist in New York Times at home and uh, sat with them at break. And the, within the next week, if I remember right, within the next week, the guy next to me turned to me and he said, hey, can I tell you something? And I was like, okay. He, and, he, and he basically explained about how his life's falling apart just literally kind of verbally threw up all over the table and explained how, you know, his marriage is falling apart. He's clueless as a parent. Spiritually, he doesn't know where he's going and literally said, do you know what I should do? And so I said, well, there's this book called The Purpose Driven Life. It just came out that time. Would you like to read it with me? 
said, yeah, I really would. So we began to spend our 15-minute breaks reading The Purpose Driven Life together. By the end of that, about 10, 11 months, by the end of that 10, 11 months, on my last day, they all gave me cards, you know, like going away cards. And I kid you not, I was shocked. The cards were like, you are the light of this office. This office will never be the same without you. You are such a blessing to all of us. And I thought, I didn't even talk to you people for six months. How is that even possible? And I realized two things in that moment. One, I'm so happy that God used me to diffuse the aroma of Christ in this office, but I'm so sad because I tried for six months to corn off part of my life, and what if I gave all of this 11 months to him? What could have happened in this office? You see what I did? I said, God, I don't want to serve you here. I'm gonna section this part of my life off to you. And I shut down. I don't know if you've ever had an experience like that. The Apostle Paul keys off this idea of aroma and you see him shift in verse 15. Look back there at verse 15. We see the Apostle Paul answering the question, how do we diffuse this sweet aroma? How do we do that? And the answer is through our sacrificial death. You see, he focuses first on the general, but now he's gonna focus on a sacrifice, an offering, and the aroma of the offering going up to God. So the other, in other words, the point here Paul is making is it is through our daily death that we diffuse the aroma of Christ in every place. Death to ourself, death to our plans, to our comforts, our ambitions, our desires, our social life, our financial security, our chances of promotion, our chances of meeting a significant other. It is through our death that the aroma, the sacrifice of our lives from the altar of our lives, the aroma goes up to God and is sweet smelling and the aroma saturates those who we are among. So what about this word among in verse 15? Do you see it? Among. We are the aroma of Christ among. Well, among just kind of connects to presence, right? Like you are, I mean, look around. You are among those you are next to. You have to be present, and you are presently among them. And the way that God uses us is through our death, he diffuses the aroma of the knowledge of Christ to those whom you are among. Now, this is really challenging for me because what I've often experienced is a strong temptation to control who I'm among, right? A strong temptation to control like who I spend my time with who I recognize and don't recognize, who I talk to and don't talk to. Like I remember when I, I mean, I live in an apartment, right, in Barcelona, and I've lived in apartments for many, many years, and so just neighbors everywhere, maybe you're in an apartment, you kind of get that, but this is not like you have to cross a fence to talk to someone. I mean, there's people everywhere, right? And so oftentimes I've had the experience of like going to work, talk, 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 Jesus, 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 go home, and on my way home, in my building, next to my door are people, and I, don't, I choose not to talk to them. Like, hi. And I'm this bold guy, you know, at work, talking about Jesus. And then I go home, there's people. And so what, what often I experience is kind of this temptation to like choose, I will be among this group, but I will not be among the group that lives next to me or the group that sits in the cubicles next to me. But here's the thing. When you try to control whom you're among, when you try to resist sharing the glories of Jesus with certain people, you're actually 
coming up against the sovereign plan of God. You say, what? Yeah, check out Acts 17, 26 and 27. It says this, and God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the earth, having determined, having God determined, not allowed, not happened by chance, not accepted, but God determined every man and woman's allotted periods, in other words, when in history they would live, and the boundaries of their dwelling place, in other words, where they would live, that they should seek God, perhaps find their way toward him. He is not far from any of us. In other words, where you live right now and what your birthday is, so 36, seven, Lamar Lane, building A, you know, door three, whatever it is, that address and your birthday, June 7, you know, 1998 or whatever it is, your address and your birthday have been determined by God for the accomplishment of his cosmic redemptive purposes. That's incredible. Can you just for a second connect the dots between your mundane reality of where the bill comes to your house, what's written on the envelope, and the eternal cosmic purposes of God connected through God's purposeful plan. And so when we try to cordon off parts of our lives, like Tuesday night, missional community, Jesus, 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 right? Jesus, Jesus, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Sunday morning, Jesus, Jesus. Wednesday morning, office, zip. On the way home from missional community, gas station, guy telling, saying there, hey, do you, do you have any money? Zip. It's like, we, we choose like this part of the day, this group of people, I'll be Christian. I'll be Jesus, Jesus, Jesus talk, you know? But then when I'm going home from that group, zip. When we do that, we're actually resisting. We're butting up against a plan that will never fail. God's sovereign plan. So I don't know about you. I don't know if you have that experience. I do. I wanna kind of finish out uh, this morning just telling you a story of a friend of mine named Rishu and I think her life will, in a sense, kind of draw out some of these things in this passage. Her name is Rishu, okay? She's from India. Now, Rishu married an Austin Stone goer who left Austin Stone many years ago, I think 10, 12 years ago, and left for India. He actually married Rishu in New Delhi. And so I think I have a picture of them. Um, that's Greg and Rishu. Let me tell you about Rishu, okay? And I, I called them this week and asked permission to share about her. All right, so Rishu is part of what's called the Rieger Cast the Rieger People Group. Uh, the Rieger People Group are part, part of a larger group called the Dalits, you may have heard of, the Untouchables. So this is a very, very low caste community in India. They're massively unreached with the gospel. They're Hindu peoples um, of about one million people. All right, now I'm gonna tell you the story about how Rishu came to Christ. And this is what Rishu wrote, uh, actually in her autobiography. She says this, and I quote, by all accounts, this family, Rishu's family, represents the first known believers of Jesus Christ in the long history of this untouchable caste of one million Indian people who are entirely trapped in idol worship, black magic, and superstition. 
So we're literally seeing here, Greg leaves the stone, goes to Delhi, marries Rishu, and Rishu and her family, as they come to Christ, are the first known believers among an entire people group of one million people trapped in evil, demonic Hinduism. All right, so Rishu grew up severely poor. I confirmed what I'm about to tell you this morning, and I've actually been there, but Rishu, her home, she was born and raised in, was 75 feet squared. Family of seven. 75 feet squared. Just think about that for a moment. I've actually been in that home. I can testify from personal experience. In Islam, in New Delhi, that's how she grew up, severely poor, on the edge of starvation at all times. And she grew up Hindu. And I want to give you an example. I want to kind of help you understand how evil the Hinduism that plagues her, her people group, the Rigar, how evil that Hinduism is, okay? Now, I know Hinduism is practiced in many ways, all over the world, but I want to talk about her specific experience in her community. Rishi writes, the general understanding in Hinduism, this is from Rishi, this is what she says, is that to drive the evil spirits away, one must create conditions in which no human would wish to live. And so that is how they lived. In every aspect of society, from bathing to eating, they would create conditions that are deplorable, that no human would wish to live. So they purposely dressed in dirty clothes. They didn't bathe or use soap. They ate spoiled food and so on. Now her family and her, her kind of slum community was known, well known for their devout worship of their particular Hindu idols. They actually became a functional training center of how to do the worship ceremonies. And before coming to Christ, this is a direct quote from Rishi, okay? Before coming to Christ, her family offered thousands of offerings in their 75-foot square house to Hindu gods, thousands. And these offerings aren't like kind of nonchalant, you know, you pass in the, well, in Europe, you know, like the, the basilica or something. It's not like you just throw a coin and a lit candle type atmosphere. No, no, no. These offerings, these Hindu rituals of daily sacrifices systematically deprived her family of their finances, enslaved them to humanity-denying health-corrupting, psychologically abusing, and demon-inviting daily rituals. This was massively dark in their home. In order to conjure up the gods and to appease them, daily, Rishu and her family would offer sacrifices using burned buffalo dung. They would spread the dung on their foreheads and ears and then eat it. When they were desperate, they would eat pig dung drink cow urine, literally follow a cow with a bucket to catch the urine, to drink. They would put the cow urine all over their home. They would drink toilet water, drink the black water from severely contaminated bathing rivers. They would go to the temple where her father would stand on one leg for hours on end, all in a desperate attempt to appease the gods. Her family lived in daily fear of even the possibility of not appeasing the gods. Rishu hated her existence. But she knew nothing else. She would go on the rooftop for makeshift home there and in her heart cry out to the gods for help and answers. But she never received an answer. The idols never answered her prayer, never a response. So they went deeper and deeper and deeper into evil, demonic 
idol worship. Every night, so her sister becomes sick and she becomes what is very apparently possessed by demons. Every single night from 2.30 to 3.30 a.m., she would experience strong demon possession in her home. Her father would conjure up demons and become um, possessed. Her sister would exhibit terrifying demon possession, screams, impersonations of old men, voices speaking, impersonations of babies, personality, complete transformation, twistings of arms and legs. And finally, the evil spirits murdered her sister. And the family was devastated. This was the darkest atmosphere you can possibly imagine. One month after her sister's death, a neighbor came by. The family was broken. The family was devastated. A neighbor came by and said, oh, so sorry you guys are having such a hard time. Listen, I came across this book, and if I carry it with me, it helps avoid the evil spirits. So I said, what book? And so it was actually a Bible, and her neighbor wasn't a believer, a Hindu. She said, so you should take it. And so Rishu was super fascinated. She's like, okay, I'll take it. And she put it on the shelf, but then she immediately forgot about it. A week later, she was searching for her headphones on the shelf, and her hand came across that Bible. She took it off and began to read it, and that's when everything started to change. The Word of God became alive to her and to her family. They began to experience answered prayer from God directly from His Word. And then they connected through a series of relationships and events to a Christian ministry in New Delhi that focuses on washing of feet and through a meeting with that Christian ministry, uh, Rishu and her family gave their lives to Christ Jesus. They surrendered all. They threw out and burned their idols. They rejected their own culture. To be a Uyghur means to be a Hindu. So they rejected their very culture of origin, their family, their community, all for Jesus Christ. Three years later, that same lady who brought the Bible by came back to their house, checking in, and she was really in a hard time. Her family had fallen apart. She was uh, devout in idol worship. Rishu shared the gospel with her about what God had done in her life in the last three years. The lady comes to Christ, and she actually baptizes the very lady who shared the gospel with her. <laughs> it's incredible. And not only because of Rishu's family, but because of what God is doing among the Rieger, now there are, there are an estimated 100 believers in Christ among the Rieger peoples. What we're looking at here, folks, is the literal, real-time accomplishment of Matthew 24, 14, and Revelation 7, 9, 7, 9. We're actually seeing it at play among this people group of one million people. And since they came to Christ, Rishu and her family have come to Christ, everything has changed in their relationships. Instead of being slaves to fear, her family are known for being the peace family. Instead of living in idol worship, they trust one God, Jesus Christ. Instead of seeking their own welfare, they serve others. Instead of eating pig dung and cow dung, they eat the very body of Christ in communion, given for them. They were well known for their idol worship. Now they're well known for being slaves of Jesus Christ. Just just, Just tip of the iceberg uh, of this was during, during the heavy restrictions in New Delhi, they were able to feed 100 families for a month 
hand cooking their food. Before, they're offering their food to idols, eating pig dung. Now they're making food for the poor. You see the transformation? So this is a picture of Greg washing the feet of men who he just gave food to. One of them became a passionate disciple of Christ. Here's the thing, and I just want to close with this. Here's the thing. Rish's story highlights the invincible and unstoppable triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ over all evil. When Jesus goes out to battle, he always comes back in triumph. When he goes out to win his people, he always wins. He never loses. No matter if they're nice people or mean people, hard of heart or soft of heart, poor or rich, no one is too far off. No one is too trapped in evil. No one is too trapped in too much darkness. No hospital room where you lay dying of your cancer is too saturated with evil for the glorious presence of Christ. No one is too long gone, too sick, too dirty, too nasty, too demented, too confused, too dumb, too emotionally unstable, too committed to evil, too drugged up, too sexually impure, too forgotten for the love and power of the triumphing general Jesus Christ. I'm not messing around. I got cancer and you're gonna get something one day. Our only hope is that we are not the main point. Our only hope and our only comfort is that our life and in our death, we belong to Jesus Christ. So I just wanna leave you with one simple question. Are you willing to surrender everything to live in the light of his victory among the people God has put you around? Or are you gonna continue to fight him, to corn him off in your life or ignore him? Do it now. Give everything to him. Because friends, I'll tell you this, he triumphs not only for his glory, but for your eternal good. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for triumphing for us. Thank you for the victory in which you allow us to live in. I pray for every person here. I pray that they would experience the transforming power of your victory in their lives and that through them, you would diffuse the aroma of the knowledge of Christ everywhere. In Jesus' name, amen.